tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. That's our one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Hi, it's me, Ben Bolin. Noel, Noel, we both... We we ben. both watched Tiger King. We did. We got to admit it. We both watched it. Well, that was like peak pandemic television. Mm. You know, I mean, it was the thing that sort of united all of us in solidarity uh, uh, and bonded us together for the fight against the coronavirus. You know, thank you, mm. Joe Exotic, for giving us that gift. Uh, apparently, the, the 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 new one is not so good. The the sequel, they just sort of like you know are mining desperately for like extra bits of stuff to, to, to shove into a series. I have not bothered watching it, but no, I did like it. And I also, I've got to give credit where credit is due to chase a story like that. And to be around as it totally like happens before your very eyes, like the filmmakers uh, deserve credit for hanging out, you know, and just kind of seeing this whole crazy story kind of, you know, unfold uh, and, and, and allowing us to, you know, go along for the ride. Is it, High art, you know, maybe not, but uh, it's definitely pretty solid documentary filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And it's a good point about the pandemic. Society was living vicariously through so many adventures of other people. You know, uh, subscriptions to streaming services were on the rise. More people were listening to podcasts, watching films, so on and so on. But one thing that we found with the help of our longtime pal Gabe Luzier was that Joe Exotic was maybe not the first Tiger King. In fact, the <laughs> the first Tiger King, we we could well say, was a guy named Charles Jamrock in the 1800s in London, which was a very, very different London from the London you'll see in the 2000s. 
It very much was. I mean, while, you know, you're still going to see the high streets and the, the cobblestones and all of that good stuff. I mean, London is a town that prides itself in its history. There were a lot more wild, exotic animals just kind of around. Uh, and that was thanks in part, uh, if not, well, no, let's just let's not give him all the credit. But it was thanks in part to Charles Jamrock, who's the coolest name in the exotic animal trade, if you ask me, spelled J-A-M-R-A-C-H. He was a uh, very, very sought after wild animal dealer. He was known throughout the world, and he had a very, very uh, A-list kind of clientele that he catered to. He had agents all over the world that would get him exactly what he needed, be it a panther, a prized panther, or a puma, or some other animal that starts with a P, since we're doing the whole alliteration thing, a parrot. Uh, they were very into, what are the macaws, Ben? That was a very sought-after, exotic mm-hmm. pet. Um, and it was all about class and status. These pets were very expensive to purchase, very expensive to feed and maintain, and very expensive and dangerous to house and keep them from, you know, like mauling the housekeeper. But that happened a lot, too. I got to jump in here and ask, actually, could he get hmm. you a porpoise to keep along with this uh, pee thing? Could you get a porpoise? It's a good him? question. I don't um, know. Were porpoises, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, were porpoises popular uh, in this period? Let's he go could, with yes. He, he could get you a porpoise on purpose. I'm sure if you if you had the he he was a, he was probably into porpoises for profit if that was a possibility. Okay, done with the pee. So this this is weird because this coincides with an earlier stuff they don't want you to know episode we did a while back on allegations of cryptids of large cats attacking people in modern day UK but back in the 1800s just as you described there were quite a few very real very dangerous large cats one example that comes to us from our pals at mental floss is how on October 26 1857 this kid was just walking down the street in London's East End when he was attacked by a tiger that had escaped its cage. The tiger snatched up the kid, like put him in its jaws and ran off with him down the street. Luckily, the kid survived, the tiger survived, and the guy who rescued the boy survived, which was convenient for the rescuer because the rescuer also owned this tiger. (laughs) It (laughs) It was being delivered to a shop owned by Charles Jamrock, and as as you had established earlier, he was, at the very least, one of the top wild animal dealers in the world, quite possibly in the world. He had this network of people all around the planet that would help him get, quote-unquote, exotic animals to London. And London, as we'll find, had had a long-standing um, fascination with all these kinds of creatures that appeared in other parts of the world. And this is this is so weird. Like, if you've been to London, you know, there are a lot of things you can complain about. It's got some of the world's worst traffic. Things can be more expensive than a lot of people are used to. But if you walk down, like, a high street now, of the many concerns you might have, one of them won't be, will a jaguar attack me? Is today right. the day that a tiger gets my foot 
be a pretty poetic way to go, but no, no, definitely would not be something I would sign up for, especially given those rapacious prices of, uh, of lodging and, and, and meals and all of that. Um, but I, I, I sort of, I, I walked it back already, but I'm just going to walk it back one step further. Charles Jamrock was definitely one of the most noteworthy wild animal dealers in the world, like you said, and, and you know, cater to a very, very, very uh, high-end clientele. But there had been a fascination, a long-standing fascination with uh, exotic animals in London long before he hit the scene. Uh, there was a wild animal menagerie uh, in the Tower of London that was around since 1235. Um, and as we've talked about in stories of, of American presidents and their weird pets and stuff. Sometimes uh, these animals are given as like political gifts, you know, as a sign of solidarity or like, here is our most notable creature from our land. We present to you uh, as a sign of our affection uh, for you as a country and as a ruler. But Jamrock, uh, he hit the scene in a moment that was really, really, really crucial. Uh, um, because trade was beginning to open up. So it was no longer all about just like having someone that was coming as an ambassador or an emissary bringing you a gift. Now there were all these trade routes that were open and essentially a business sprung up out of this whole uh, fascination. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. 
it was quite an industry. In the late 18th century, noises from big animals, especially large cats around the Exeter Estrange area, were just a normal part of city background noise, the way you would hear horns honking or people saying, hey, I'm walking here, or, you know, whatever the UK version of that is. So there, there was even a writer, Charles Lamb, who lived in Temple Lane, and he wrote about how he liked to hear the big cats yelling when he walked home after a good night of drinking and partying. It's strange because, you know, if you think about it, this makes a kind of sense. This is the age of the British Empire. It's the world's leading imperial power. And so it was seen as a benefit of living in the heart of this empire to have this at-home access to animals from around the world. And people made a lot of money doing this kind of thing. As you said, there's a guy named Joshua Brooks who had uh, a menagerie, they called it, at the end of Tottenham Court Road. And his specialization, you'll love this, was exotic birds, but he also was into antelopes, lions, monkeys, porcupines. This is like a day at the zoo for a lot of people. You you feel like you're getting a taste of culture. You feel like you're living uh, vicariously, right? You're having adventures by having the world brought to you. Totally. Um, and there is a fantastic book by Christopher Plum called Georgian Menagerie that you can get uh, at the Guardian's online bookshop. If you just go to bookshop.theguardian.com and John Mullen over at the Guardian did a really great review uh, and excerpted a little bit from this book that talks about just this period in English history, uh, Georgian England, Georgian London. Right. Um, and there were everything from camels to, you know, um, rhinoceri, whatever. Is it rhinoceroses? Who cares? They were everywhere. As, as the Guardian puts it, lions on Tottenham Court Road, camels on the Strand, England's capital once teemed with beasts. So this would have been a very, very interesting time. Like you said, Ben, it was sort of just par for the course and folks were treating it more like just a visit to the zoo. It wasn't a huge deal. It was just another attraction that London had to offer uh, to entertain people. You know, there were even like traveling wild animal menageries that would go from town to town. And then if you had enough money, you could actually buy your own tiger or boa constrictor or whatever you might tickle your fancy. So there were a ton of exotic pet shops already. By 1895, there were around 118 wild animal dealers with brick-and-mortar shops just in London, but you also have them all over the country in places like Bristol and Bath and Liverpool. Um, and you could, if you were so disposed financially and, you know, mentally, uh, to go into one of these and check out a bear or an elephant or a kangaroo, mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, pretty wild if you think about it. And England kind of got this reputation as being the hub, the center, the kind of like dumping off point for this wild animal trade, whether they were alive or dead. Uh, because a lot of these animals would not survive the long journeys from their native lands, you know, to uh, London, to this hub. It's funny, like we live here in Atlanta uh, and Atlanta is a hub for a lot of things like that too. Uh, unfortunately, one of those is human trafficking. That's because of our proximity to one of the biggest airports in the world. So this is the kind of thing you get when you sort of become this like crossroads of civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, uh, there are a couple of points there that, that I think we could highlight. For context, let's keep in mind, uh, this is the same part of the world where people were flexing by renting pineapples. It's a totally. very 
different cultural framework. Uh, Don't forget and, about the shoes also. Are we, are we still in pointy shoes area or are we past that now? I think we're, we're a little that. past pointy shoes, but pointy shoes are always around the corner because it's fashion. So get ahead of it and get your own pointy shoes today. Ridiculous history branded. Always be closing. This is a good time for us to give some examples of uh, these weird flexes. Consider the Earl of Shelburne, who later went on to become prime minister. This guy kept an orangutan and a tame leopard in his orangery at Bowood House. We talked about oranges, too. You were flexing by having citrus fruits grown on your sure. property. Yeah, and uh, I... Can I, can this, I just ask, yeah. is, is, sure. a, is a leopard ever truly tame? I mean... Yeah, you can do it. Really? Yeah, you sure? just the, it's the difference between taming and domesticating. So okay. a single individual uh, creature could be ostensibly tamed, uh, but it would still very much be a wild animal. So it wouldn't all of a sudden be like you have a, a spotted version of Lassie, if that makes sense. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is, is we're going to see in some of these stories, there is the perception of having a tame animal. And then, you know, when you maybe poke or prod it or push it a little too far, does that tame element kind of drop off and then it sort of reverts back to its natural state of wildness. It can. Yeah. Because taming, think of it as like human familiarization with humans or with often with like a couple of particular humans. And, you know, you'll be seen as, as a peer or, a, a, or maybe even you'll be uh, seen as an authoritarian or, mm -hmm. or parent figure, yeah. but they're still very much uh, wild, wild animals. And I love, I love the point about orangutans because they're so intelligent. In fact, just recently, I learned there was a long-standing myth in um, this long-standing myth in some very specific region where orangutans occur, uh, where the people have always believed that orangutans can talk. They've just decided not to let humans know because they don't want to be put to work. And there's some great meme. I, I keep picturing it. It sounds so realistic. Of like a bunch of orangutans hanging out, even though they're kind of solitary creatures, hanging out, shooting the breeze, maybe having a book club. And then they see some humans coming and they say, oh, shit, everybody shut up. They're going to make us pay taxes. <laughs> but they are they are they are very intelligent animals and, and you know shelburne is um not an exception to the rule sir robert walpole had a pet flamingo sir hans sloan had a one-eyed tame wolverine that would just sort of follow him around his house he also had an opossum and a porcupine no word on how the three animals got along i would imagine he kept them separate ben you pronounce the o and possum I know this is a very divisive thing. I think it's a person, I think it uh, shows, it speaks to people's personalities. I uh, actually believe there's a difference between a possum and an opossum. It's, it's a little confusing. Uh, they both refer to the Virginia possum in North America. Uh, the technical or scientific context, I think, is opossum. But then if you go to bobvila.com, which I did not think would Enter the conversation today. Uh, Bob is telling me that one key difference is their tails. A possum's tail is thick and furry, he says. Thanks, Bob. Who knew he was such an expert? Yeah, yeah. I guess he got started in the possum game and then went on uh, to the rest of his story career. So when we when we look Try at this, we true, can... trustworthy home advice. <laughs> Bob feel and possums. And opossums. Uh, yeah, let us know your your take on the possum-opossum controversy. Uh, Queen Charlotte, that's another quick example, wife to George III. She had an elephant. She had a couple of zebras in Buckingham Palace. And she was one of the big 
champions of bringing exotic animals to London. And she had a collection of the first living kangaroos seen in the area, which later led to a kangaroo collecting mania in the 1790s. And then, yeah, and she would give kangaroo babies, joeys, to her fellow aristocrats who already had their own private menageries. You know, I think we've talked about this, but uh, it turns out that the the pouch on mama kangaroos that the little joeys hang out in, mm-hmm. it's not just a cute little warm, dry no. place. It's actually full of like slimy, amniotic fluid type stuff. It is very gross. I know a lot of uh, unhelpful and fascinating kangaroo facts, which we don't <laughs> we don't need to get here. But I'll, all I'm the only reason I'm saying that is to point out that yes, Noel, you are. You are correct. It is. It is not a like a cozy. It's not like that cozy little side pocket you get on some jeans. It, it totally, it, or it would be if that was filled with snot when you bought it. Totally, oh, absolutely, absolutely spot on. So I mentioned earlier the idea of live and dead animals being a part of this trade. Um, the dead animals were just as important as the live, and in fact, those are the ones we still think of today that kind of codify Britain's kind of empire-building influence across the planet. You know, the idea of like a huntsman or like some like moneyed British royal or business person in their lodge, you know, with all these severed taxidermied heads of different animals they killed, um, you know, on safari or whatever. This is almost a stereotypical image of uh, imperialism, if you think about it. Um, During the reign of Queen Victoria, there was an Indian-based taxidermy company uh, called Van Ingen and Van Ingen um, that stuffed uh, close to 43,000 wild animals, including tigers and leopards and more, between 1900 and uh, 1950. So this is like well beyond the era that we're specifically discussing today, but just so you know how far this stuff goes. And this was to supply the European and Indian demands for these types of trophies that we're talking about. Uh, And they would, you know, travel across the globe to, you know, get these uh, specimens and then, you know, stuff and mount them um, to fill up those trophy type rooms that we're talking about. Yeah. Yep. And these animals weren't always just for show. Turtle Feast had a became a, a really popular fad in the city of London. Like it wasn't a respectable social dinner unless there was freshly prepared turtle. And this is what <laughs> this is one of the most uh, pretentious things. This bothers me because I like this animal. Eventually, at some point, the most well-to-do aristocrats could have must have their wigs dressed with bear grease and only bear grease and thousands of barrels of bear grease came from Arkansas. This almost led to the extinction of bears in Arkansas. Bears from Russia were fattened up and and potential customers would sometimes travel to witness the removal of fat from the bear corpse as a guarantee they weren't getting swindled with pig fat. This like This gets into some gross territory. I think we should also note, just for some foreshadowing here, that um, this did not come without cost for the common people. The tiger that's just out wandering the streets of London isn't going to say, hey, I am going to attack the people who brought me here. They're just, you know, all humans are on the menu. So you can see stories of panthers tearing off uh, women's arms. You can see stories of 
people getting their clothing attacked when they got too close to a creature in a menagerie. Uh, There's also a guy named, well, a lion named Wallace the Lion in the 1820s who was famous for tearing the hands and other limbs off three people on several different occasions. He actually uh, went to Derby, he escaped in Derbyshire, rather, and killed a guy one time, but he was not put down. He was returned to captivity because there had already been so much investment in these creatures. And indeed, they became more successful, more profitable when they had a bloody story in their past, right? Now you're not seeing a regular lion, you're seeing a man eater. Uh, totally. Yeah, this is crazy. I love you mentioned Queen Victoria because during her reign, there was this explosion in construction of all kinds of venues for seeing exotic animals, private as well as available to the public. Like zoos today, some of it had ties to uh, more of a scientific bent, you know, like we are learning more about the natural world, which is a noble thing to do. Others were definitely more kind of like a Barnum and Bailey type circus acts, you know. So here's the other thing. This trade was unregulated. All you needed to have was the scratch, the starting capital. Uh, It's true that the very first what we would call animal welfare laws had been passed. And there were people saying, hey, maybe we're going too far with the fur trade. A lot of these animals are dying in transport. But that's not something a lot of people wanted to hear. They were more interested in having their turtle soup, their tigers, and their their bear grease wigs, which is still weird to me that that was the, like of all the things you could do with a bear, that's that's the thing you want to brag about. Someone's like some really good grease, man. I mean, what do you want? You know, when you, when you, the heart wants what the heart wants. I guess so. And so does the wig. So at this point, at this point, I believe it's time for us to introduce Charles Jamrock. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. You write the books, Jean, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... 
We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. You know, it's funny, Noel, uh, you were mentioning this off air. I'm pretty sure that we have uh, some restaurants in Atlanta who are named after Charles Jamrock. I don't know they're named after him. It's spelled J-A-M-R-O-C-K, which to me, I don't know, I think of like reggae music as like like roots rock reggae, you know, like uh, jam with jamming, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, a, a Bob Marley song and all of that, the Wailers. So the idea of jam rock to me seems like a very reggae kind of concept because these are in fact uh jamaican restaurants that we're talking about but uh yeah charles jamrock was not jamaican at all he was uh, of german heritage he was born in hamburg germany in 1815 as charles christian jamrock that's my middle name actually and he went on to become a preeminent dealer, as we mentioned at the top, of wild and exotic creatures. Everything from birds to, you know, uh, four-legged guys, whatever whatever was in demand, he could get you one. Wombats. Yeah, if, very much so. We'll get to that. And he actually got the help of his father to establish this vast trading network, supplying uh, to zoos, menageries, circuses, museums, Anyone that was in need of a uh, wild creature, uh, dead or alive, he had their back. Uh, This was all during 19th century Europe. And even the famous English poet Dante, not uh, not Dante Allegri, but uh, the uh, British poet Dante Gabriel Rossetti, um, he bought a wombat, his beloved pet wombat, from our guy Jamrock. You got to have one. Uh, a wombat is like the uh, it's like old yeller for poets. You got to <laughs> you got to have one. I want to I want to step back because the reason I was setting up the uh, Jamaican restaurant joke here, which I'm going to I'm going to keep. I'm just going to make that my reality. Uh, Jam Jamrock is spelled J-A-M-R-A-C-H and made the uh, a- after looking through some pronunciation possibilities, I just decided to say <laughs> Jamrock as well. For this, it sounds cooler. Uh, if you are a descendant of old CCJ himself uh, and you have a preferred pronunciation, that's fine. Totally. Please write in. Love to hear it. But but this guy followed, like you said, he followed in his dad's footsteps. And, well, and it made sense yeah. that his father was able to help him because his father knew the trade, the trade routes. Right. He was very much right. set up to be that guy. Yeah, he had insider information. He knew what was coming off the boats and often knew when because he was a harbor master. So he had the connects. In 1839, Charles's brother, Anton, moves to London to start his own animal trade business following in dear old Da's footsteps. But unfortunately, Anton passes away very soon after he arrives, and this is an opportunity for Charles to take over the business. 
after Charles's father expires in 1840, this is a tough series of years for Charles, uh, he moves to London himself, he takes over, he opens an exotic pet store and a museum of natural history called Jamrock's Animal Emporium. I love it when people use the word emporium. I am such a sucker for the word emporium. I've been in so many tourist traps in the middle of nowhere America just because someone slapped emporium on their, you know, (laughs) on their kitsch store. So thank you, Emporiums. Uh, He also had a, so he had the Emporium on St. George Street. He had another outfit, a menagerie on Bett Street. And there's a pretty great, uh, there's a pretty great description of this from the spectator in 1891, where they say, Mr. Charles Jamrock, the wild beast man, as he's sometimes familiarly called, never failed to have a large assortment of tigers and lions on hand. The passages between the two stories of cages were narrow and walking, and to walk down them was occasionally like running the gauntlet. So they're they're trying to sort of articulate the excitement, the endorphin rush, the thrill of danger people experience because the animals, without reading the whole quote, right, the animals pause can reach people. This is not like a modern zoo. There's mm. not like a pit and a, you know, a large fence. There's a cage. And so if you walk too slow, you know, as anybody, like the three of us all uh, have cats living with us. Uh, if you walk by just a regular house cat and it's feeling, you know, kind of in a punchy mood, they'll just swat at you. Give you a swat. Give you a good yeah. old swat. And if you get a little claw that connects, you might end up with a slice. Uh, and this is a, you know, significantly smaller cat than what we would be dealing with in these emporiums or, or uh, Mr. Jamrock's emporium. So if you caught one of those swipes, it might like, you know, lose you a limb or at the very least, you know, give you a serious injury. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is <laughs> I, I can say this because this is kind of embarrassing. That's how I found out cat scratch fever is a real thing, not just the Ted Nugent song. I, I actually one time got cat scratch fever as a kid. Isn't it like a like a parasite almost that makes you like do bow to the will of your feline uh, masters? That's toxoplasmosis. Oh, okay, well, what's cat scratch fever? Cat scratch fever uh, is cat scratch fever is you a bacterial infection, and uh, if you if a cat bites you or scratches you, all I remember is I got a fever and then I had like a swollen area of my body, but I got over it. I survived no toxoplasmosis, which I would always love to avoid, but people weren't worried about toxoplasmosis. They probably weren't too worried about cat scratch fever. They wanted the thrill of feeling like they had escaped a jaguar or a tiger. And so Jamrock is blowing up. He's starting to be known as sort of world-class in the business, which he was. And more and more people, very well-to-do people, started to come to him and say things like, Mr. Jamrock, I follow your career with great interest, and I've always wanted to own an armadillo. Like, literally, they would say this. They would come to him and request specific animals, and he he would say, you know, well, I imagine we can work something out. And people would buy elephants and like you said, parakeets, macaws, all kinds of stuff from him. He also started networking. It's funny, man, at our at our favorite local wing spot, which we shout out all the time, <laughs> called The Local, uh, one of the guys who works there, I'm not going to disclose his name, um, he has a world-class meteorite collection, like museum level. And I was talking, and I think you, you know the guy, Noel, and I was talking to him about 
I was like, how do you find these things? How does it work? And he has a network of dealers across the world. Like when a meteorite falls, he knows the guys who get on the plane to find it, which is sort of like how Jamrock was with his network that, you know, he pretty much inherited from his dad, I think, right? Like he built upon it, but it came from his dad. Oh, totally. I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, even though this was very big in London, this whole exotic animal trade, it was probably a network of only a handful of top, top players of which Jamrock was like the A number one. I, mean, I think we said there were like a hundred and something dealers in London, which is a massive, massive metro area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was kind of uh, the top of the heap when it came to this relatively niche industry, because after all, you could only afford this if you were of a certain class. So this wouldn't have been something like, you know, necessities, like, you know, food and grain and and things like that that would have obviously been on a much, much larger scale. Uh, Even as large a scale as this was, it was still only for a very select few. But the thing that I think is neat and probably... One reason we still talk about this guy today was because he started to develop all these relationships with these really important uh, institutions in London, like the Natural History Museum and the Zoological Garden, which is now known as the London Zoo. Um, so when he, you know, would have overflow on his and his, you know, pens or his facilities or whatever, uh, he would essentially allow the zoological gardens to store these creatures for him. And it would be almost like a trial basis where if the animals mm-hmm. were a hit with, uh, you know, the, the spectators, then the zoo would actually buy it from him. So he had this kind of built in um, relationship with those guys that would help him sort of clear some of his uh, creatures out if, if they were sticking around for too long. Yeah, he had an audition process. Uh, well, non-consensual on the animal's part. And, you know, a lot of these animals are from very different climates. So unfortunately, unless they were unless a lot of TLC was put into their diet they wouldn't last long once they arrived if they made it off the ship alive and because of that rate of attrition because so many animals were dying in transit or within the first few weeks or months after arriving Jamrock naturally developed that uh, side hustle you were mentioning with taxidermy uh, he got more and more and more and more successful. We're talking waiting lists for animals, stuff like that. People are kissing his keister just to get on his good side and maybe jump the line a little bit. And in 1857, at the high point of his success, he gets his crown jewel, a fully grown Bengal tiger that came to England from the East Indies. This takes us to that morning we talked about at the very top, the morning of October 26th, when the tiger and several other large felines, by the way, arrives at the Belt Street Menagerie. Whoa! Hold the phone, hold the horses, grab the tigers. This is a two-parter. We have just gotten to the introduction of our main character, if not our protagonist, I would argue. It's also Christmas, so give us a break. You owe us a two-parter. Come on, let us have this, please. We love you. The next part's going to be a lot of fun, and it happens this week, so not even that long to wait. In the meantime, why not reach out to us? Send us an email. We've got one, right, Ben? We do. Well, you guys have one. I'm still trying to get access to ridiculous at iheartmedia.com. But give us, drop us a line. Let us know. Uh, as always, we want to hear your uh, strange animal encounters. 
from your neck of the global woods. You can also tell us about that on Ridiculous Historians at Facebook. While you're on the internet, you can make friends with us, not just as a show, but as individuals. I'm Ben Bolin on Instagram, B-O-W-L-I-N, Ben Bolin, H-S-W on Twitter. Get a look at my various... Various misadventures. Um, candidly, I had to be off social media for a little bit, but I'm, I'm getting back to it slowly but surely. Can't wait to hear from everybody. Yep, you can find me on social media as well. I am exclusively on Instagram at HowNowNoelBrown. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.